This yes. is hell. Okie doke. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. For over, over 30 years here in the United States, there have been open calls by Republicans to take back the country. Originally, they were only made by those on the far right, relics from the Nixon administration that tried to conceal their racism. Now those calls are being made by nearly every Republican, and for a while there during a Republican presidency. No longer embraced by only the fringe, taking back the country seems to be at the heart of reactionary politics in the United States today. From whom are they taking back the country anyway, when this is a country whose founding was based on taking the country from someone else? Well, they're taking it back from anyone who is not white and does not have a Judeo-Christian identity, apparently. They target some merely because of their appearance and whatever hate that triggers in the racist and often violent mind. Add on to the difference in appearance and non-Judeo-Christian religion being openly practiced, and that violent racist can become deadly. In the late 1980s, growing up in Jersey City, today's guest was a victim of such hatred, as was the entire Asian community. First and second generation immigrants and the children of immigrants derided for their success at achieving the American dream. That success did not lead to support and pride from their neighbors, but hatred, intimidation, and physical attacks as Asian Americans were soon or were seen as the model minority and proof that the American dream is still alive and well. But for those who the dream had passed by, immigrant success sparked antagonism from whites, yet influenced by African-American civil rights leaders like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the persecuted Asians rose up to fight back against the racist tyranny, and King, remember, was influenced by his South Asian counterpart, Gandhi. But what does it mean to be South Asian or the more commonly used Asian-American? Our guest in, today includes her very large West Indian immigrant family into the group of Asian-Americans, but adds Asian the term Asian, like other census-given identities, is too broad a category. It collapses into one a wide diversity of individual migration stories, as if the path of a Filipino recruited as a nurse on a work visa matches the path of a Vietnamese who landed as a refugee. The state and the street both do this reductive work society through the model minority myth, in a sense flattens the identity Asian into a class. In a few minutes, we'll be speaking with journalist and author Gayutra Buhadar, who wrote the Boston Review article, Unmaking Asian Exceptionalism on Violence and the Possibility of Solidarities in America. Gayutra is an associate professor of journalism and English in the Department of Arts, Culture, and Media and the Department of English at Rutgers University. Caroline Gonzalez-Sanchez and Veronica Torres provided research support for this essay as Clement A. Price Scholars at Rutgers. Giotra is also the author of Cooley Woman, the Odyssey of Indenture. Cooley Woman was shortlisted for the Orwell Prize, the British Literary Award for Artful Political Writing, and was a nonfiction finalist for the OCM Bocas Prize for Caribbean Literature. 
It won the Gordon K. and Sybil Lewis Prize for the best book about the Caribbean in any language from the Caribbean Studies Association in 2014. The Chronicle of Higher Education included the book in its roundup of the best scholarly books of the decade in 2020. She also won the New Jersey State Council on the Arts Award for Prose in 2012 for Into Dark Waters, which is a chapter of Cooley Woman. Her essay, Tales of the Sea, first published in the Australian literary magazine The Griffith Review and later reprinted in the anthology We Mark Your Memory, won the 2019 New Jersey State Council on the Arts Award for Prose. She's also the recipient of a national award for creative prose from the Barbara Deming Memorial Fund for American Feminist Writers and is the recipient of literary residencies at McDowell and the Rockefeller Foundation's Bellagio Center in Italy. Her work as a scholar in the humanities has been recognized and supported with fellowships from the Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research at Harvard, the Schoenberg Center for Research in Black Culture at the New York Public Library, the Society of Authors in London, and the Eccles Center for American Studies at the British, Liter- British Library. In other words, she's won a lot of awards. She's also a member of the National Book Circle's uh, Critics Circle, uh, Pan America, and the Asian American Writers Workshop. You can follow her on Twitter at G Bahadur. That's G B A H A D U R. And you can find out more about her at Gayutra.com. Gayutra.com. G A I U T R A. Producing is Dan Kugler. Dan. What's new by you? Any new things happening in your life? Hey, I went to the uh, Jolly Inn uh, with family and friends last uh, uh, on Sunday. You ever been there? No, it's I have a, no idea. What's the Jolly Inn? All, all you can eat a uh, Polish place on uh, Irving Park. It's great if you're a glutton like uh, me. And especially for Polish food at yes. Irving Park and where? Um, n- near Narragansett. So oh, okay. it's a little west of the expressway and stuff. Because I go to the Red Apple sometimes up on uh, Milwaukee, just past Superdog, Milwaukee yeah, and Devon. Yeah. Same kind of thing, it's right? It's pr- pretty similar. I say yeah it's the same somebody told me that there's a polish eagles club over on milwaukee that's a fantastic place to get the buffet because you never know who the live band is that's playing and a friend of mine told me she loves going there because sometimes it'll be like inexplicably a kiss cover band (laughs) (laughs) so she said it sounds fantastic i know doesn't it i really want to go uh so uh last weekend we went to central illinois to celebrate the person who would be my father-in-law, uh, his birthday, if for whatever reason my partner and I ever decided to ruin our relationship by getting married. She was very happy to see her dad, and we were joined by aunts, uncles, cousins, who were all celebrating not only his birthday, but a book about the history of the family, which was just published by a family member. It was great, except Central Illinois is just weird. It's weird. On the drive through Bloomington, Illinois, where they live, you go down several blocks of just incredible, magnificent, perfectly maintained mansions that date from the mid-19th century into, at the latest, the very early 20th century. That's until you get to the Beer Nuts Factory, which separates those massive homes from the nearby neighborhood where her father and stepmom live. It also has beautiful, uh, historically preserved homes in their neighborhood, dozens of which have markers out front that say things like, Lincoln slept here. Two Pulitzer Prize winners were raised in this home. Uh, A Lincoln-Douglas debate happened in this backyard by this tree. In my would-be in-laws community, those historic homes are mixed in with other older mansions that have been reconfigured into apartment houses. Uh, Sometimes 
It's beautifully done. Others not so much and look in desperate need of repair. All alongside places that look like every day of being built 150 years ago. Most but not all are still occupied. Yes, there are empty, abandoned homes next to beautifully historically preserved uh, preserved mansions. Nearly every home, no matter how huge or humble, has a grand front porch and large backyards. And every one of those porches and yards is almost always empty, mysteriously empty. The streets are lined with old tall trees with completely broken and shattered sidewalks everywhere. It's got this really weird vibe that vibe that my nephew described as a place that doesn't seem real. I love the people we visit, but the odd mix of enormous generational wealth on one side of the beer nuts factory and on the other side perfectly kept historic homes next to empty falling down shacks all down the street from a downtown that has been abandoned is for me a kind of unsettling portrait of unequal America, and I find it disturbing and fascinating. But more important than the uneasy feeling I get in this place that doesn't seem real, that being Central Illinois. Dan, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, where would you next like to see Tucker Carlson. Where would you next like to see Tucker Carlson? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. If your answer is our favorite, you will get your choice of This Is Hell stuff that is now available at thisishell.com when you click on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and this week's hangover cure is not fast food. We know the Daily Mail sucks, so apologies that yet again our featured hangover cure is from the terrible Daily Mail, which ran the article, A Greasy Full English Smoothie or Hair of the Dog. We asked dietitians what the best hangover cure really is, and their answers will surprise you. Their headlines suck, too. The awful Daily Mail reports pizzas, burgers, and chips are tempting when you have a hangover, but it probably isn't the best thing to eat, according to experts. London-based registered dietitian Joe Travers explained that for the liver to process alcohol after drinking, it has to put other jobs on the back burner. Travers told Mail Online, one of the liver's functions is to release stored carbohydrates into the bloodstream when blood sugar drops too low. This is why people often crave carbs on a hangover as this job isn't being done very efficiently. This can be counterproductive and can lead to a cycle of spiking and crashing. Eating too much junk food will also increase cravings, according to a nutritionist by the name of Helen Bannister. Bannister said crashes cause symptoms such as mood swings, including feeling hangry, increased food cravings, feeling more hungry, as well as crashing your energy levels. That makes this week's hangover cure not fast food, no matter how much you are craving it. We got an email from Sarah Kay, who writes, Hey Chuck, been a listener for a while now, and have heard you mention that there is a Discord server for This Is Hell. How do I receive an invitation link? I'd love to come talk about how much everything sucks with y'all. Thanks, Sarah Kay. So we shared the link to our Discord page with Sarah. Uh, The link apparently serves as an invite, and we posted it on Facebook and Twitter again, so you can find it there. If you can get a pen and paper right now and actually write something down, the very clumsy link to join us on Discord is 
discord.gg slash C capital N X A capital P P N T G B C capital N X A capital P P N T G B. Just go to discord.gg, followed by that, and you'll find it. We also received some very kind support from Erickson P., who writes, Glad you are coming back strong. Thanks, Erickson. It was actually a year ago today that for the first time in two months, I was able to walk over here to the studio, a one-block walk from my house, mind you. It took me two months to be able to walk over here. I still wasn't able to do the show after a series of life-saving surgeries, four or five at last count, over two weeks in the hospital and then two months of very slow recuperation. But Erickson, I wouldn't say I'm coming back strong as much as I'm coming back, period. Good enough, I guess, I'm back. If you want to share anything with the class, send us an email at chuckatthisishell.com, and if you do, we'll likely read it on air. Coming up, a big-picture look at racism toward Asian Americans. Dan shares your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what's happening during, or what happened during last week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Also coming up, it's the past inside the present with historian Dr. Sebastian Vupper, who offers the historical context of the past that we need to have a better understanding of the present. Dan, what is Seb talking about during the past inside the present this week? The past inside the present will feature Seb looking at the history of the fairness doctrine. Sweet. The history of the fairness doctrine. Always a fair reading from Seb. Live from late capitalism where property has more rights than people. This is hell. When the history of racism, the structural and institutional pillars of racism that exist within the United States and have existed since its beginning and likely predating its founding, when that is discussed, its focus is often on the plight of African Americans, and rightfully so. The struggle by black civil rights activists should be remembered and celebrated. But when other targets of racism, in the case of today's conversation, Asian Americans, are considered, a larger picture of the fight against white Christian nationalist, nationalism emerges that refuses to tolerate anyone's success living the American dream that doesn't look like them and practice their religion. Joining us is journalist and author Gayutra Bahadar, who wrote the Boston Review article, Unmaking Asian Exceptionalism on Violence and the Possibility of Solidarities in America. Welcome to This Is Hell, Gayutra. Hello, Chuck. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And um, one thing you left out of that intro is uh, Jersey Girl. I think that, that that should really be foregrounded above all else. Yes, it should be. Uh, tell people a little bit about Jer- Jersey Girl. Uh, well, my family immigrated to uh, the U.S. in 1981, and we came to Jersey City, New Jersey, which is uh, a small city just across the river from Lower Manhattan um, and kind of an underdog place for a very long time, historically an immigrant gateway. But um, I I claim full citizenship here in in this republic in particular. You start your writing by saying that as I watched Pat Buchanan address the Republican National Convention three decades ago, and I just want to add, this this is a moment that's ingrained in my memory too, and I'm just some white disabled dude. But I, as I watched Pat Buchanan address the Republican National Convention three decades ago, I cried. I can still see his doughy face and fixed expression fill the TV screen as he urged 
his almost all-white audience, we must take back our cities and take back our culture and take back our country. Cities, culture, and country. This, For those who were not alive at the time or don't remember, this was Buchanan's so-called 1992 culture war speech. Buchanan had run for president during the 1992 and 96 Republican primaries, losing his bid for the candidacy both times. He was a far-right candidate who had worked for both the Nixon and Reagan administrations. Buchanan was the first person Nixon named to his administration, and he worked as both a speechwriter and opposition researcher, which is a creepy position. For Reagan, he was the White House communication director from 85 to 87. After uh, his runs for the presidency, he founded the American Conservative magazine in 2002, launched a foundation named the American Cause. In other words, he was a very influential person when it came to Republican and conservative messaging from the Nixon administration and into the 21st century. What disturbed you so much about Buchanan saying, we must take back our cities and take back our culture and take back our country. What do you think disturbed you so much about that very disturbing phrase? Well, I, w- I was 17 when I heard it. Um, and I, I do have a visual memory of that moment. I can see where I was. I was sitting on my parents' uh, bed in Jersey City watching watching the Republican National Convention. Cities, uh, culture, I mean, I, I think it landed personally because my family, we thought we were we were here to to help on all those fronts, right? That we were um we were here to help. Well, I mean, we were here for the American dream. And it seemed like he was saying that uh, we weren't a part of it, that somehow, uh, you know, we represented a threat to to all those um, American values. Um, and as I mentioned, we had come at a time in Jersey City's history um, when we were literally being attacked, uh, we being Indian-looking people um, in, in my neighborhood. Um, so there was the attack that was landing um, physically against people who looked like me, and then there was this rhetorical attack against Immigrants. I mean, that's how I read it then when I heard those words. Um, So, you know, on both levels, I just felt hugely vulnerable. And I was a young person at the time. Now, I say, go ahead. No, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt. Go ahead. Um, uh, I say that I heard it at the time as an attack against immigrants, but. Um, in order to write this piece, I went went back, I found the speech on YouTube, I listened to it again, um, and I heard it very differently this time. You know, I realized that this coming after the LA uprising um, was also a very pointed attack against African Americans. All right, Take so... Back. Yeah, so let me get to what he says towards the end of his speech. Buchanan concludes that speech with a description of National Guardsmen taking control of Los Angeles during the 1992 uprising. Buchanan states, Here were 19-year-old boys ready to lay down their lives to stop a mob from molesting old people they did not even know. This is a reference to the National Guardsmen who were there. And as those boys took back the streets of Los Angeles block by block, my friends, we must take back our cities and take back our culture and take back our country. He didn't just want to take back cities. He wanted to do it with force. To what extent do you think that sentiment is now embraced by the Republican Party that is a focus on culture wars backed by rhetorics, the rhetoric of 
otherism, intimidation, and violence. How much do you think that that has become the common belief and the belief that's embraced not just by the fringe within the Republican Party, but the most central part of the Republican Party? Well, we've just come lived through the Trump years, after all, right? I mean, a moment that I thought was, for a long time, it seemed that that sentiment in the Republican Party and in mainstream American society was a thing we had progressed beyond that we 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 had moved past and and then I mean the Trump years just sort of uh, and I laid all of that bare that we 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 have not made that progress um, and though those elements were just sort of underground um, uh, waiting for permission to speak speak openly. Um, and I mean, I say the Trump years, but I realize that uh, we're not past it, right? <laughs> Definitely not. I mean, uh, this is something that continues to be um, a problem. Um, and uh, with the election two years away, um, you know, it will be brought to the forefront again. These these feelings, um, these racisms will be given a space, you know, a respectable space to speak its name. Do you think racism is a successful political strategy in the United States still? I think, I mean, there's no denying it, that it, that it has given that base. Um, it has fired up that base, and it's really what what is behind the success of a figure like Donald Trump. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I, I'm not, uh, I, I am an optimist, right? I mean, you have to be, if you're going to be in any sense, a believer in the American dream. Um, I'm, I'm a believer in uh, knowing our history, right? And um, resisting, resisting the darkest parts of it. So the darkest parts of the American dream, uh, how much do you think that the American dream is a tool for white privilege? How much is the American dream an uh, American dream that is at least too many racists? And when you look at the history of the United States, how much has the American dream been solely for white people and a tool for white privilege? Well, exactly. That's it, right? I mean, you you come as my family did, <laughs> um, uh, to the United States as believers in, in that thing. Right. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of your religion, in a sense, um, the American dream. And um, it's been a process of learning for me um, that it was uh, through through racist and exclusionary immigration laws, through red light, redlining, through any number of structural um, levers meant for white Americans, right? It was never a, a dream for for black Americans. It was a nightmare. You write of the of a, this is such a hard question, right? I say that I'm that I'm an optimist. I'm still I'm still a believer in, in the American dream. Um somehow. I feel like it, it is ours to fight for and reshape in actually just ways. 
So do you think that the American dream does give everybody the opportunity that it promises? Or is that the uh, is that the shortcoming of the American dream, that it promises opportunity for everybody but doesn't fulfill that singular promise of opportunity, equal opportunity for everybody? Yeah, I mean, exact, exactly right. Um, uh, I, and I, in the essay, I speak about home ownership, for instance, to just focus on that, right? Um, uh, my family moved to the U.S., and within a decade, my parents um, owned a home, a small home um, in Jersey City, and it was for us, right, the actual achievement of the quote-unquote American dream. Um, but in at that time in in the city, um, only thirty percent of people who lived there were able to own their homes, and that's white uh, residents of the city. For black residents of the city, the rates of homeownership were even uh, lower; they were twenty percent, right? So there there is a a wealth gap there in homeownership. Um, and I mean that, as we know, is is a result of of um, uh, discriminatory housing practices and laws, right? So, if you see homeownership then as the definition of the American dream, we know that there hasn't been equal opportunity, and there continue to be uh, gaps in homeownership. You write of living in Jersey City in the late 1980s. At the time, I believe that. He aimed this we, and as far as Buchanan is concerned, he aimed this we, his we and his our against me and my family. I felt it viscerally. In that long limbo after immigrating, my body was in a perpetually queasy state. I was 17, too young to vote, but already made and unmade by the politics of race, by the coded language of candidates, as well as by the racism that it enabled, racism as overtly menacing as the graffiti that once defaced our house, Hindus go home, it directed. A long limbo and perpetually queasy state. Did you ever feel safe from that racism in the late 1980s, say within your home, with your family, or did you never feel safe, especially after the graffiti? Did did that kind of queasy feeling ever come back again? Is it kind of a PTSD-like feeling that you get? I think that's a good way of putting it, actually. I I I feel I live in Jersey City again. I moved back after being living away for over two decades. Um, it's a different place now, you know, uh, economically. It is uh, usually gentrified. Um, we have uh, a mayor in Jersey City, Steve Fulop, who's been incredibly encouraging to developers. Um, and that's seen the displacement of a lot of um, black and brown folks in this city. So the kind of um, economic deprivations that I describe still exist, but there are also um, a lot of people who live in this city who are well off. Um so I move in a different city in this same body, um, you know, feeling more fully confident of my my identity. I end the piece by saying, I too am America, right? I'm confident in that. But at the same time, you know um, that anything can happen at any point. You know, if you're walking down the wrong street, 
And I mean, I think African-Americans know this too. Things can go south very quickly. Um, and, and we've seen the resurgence of white supremacist groups. Um, but I felt, I felt safe within our home. My parents' reaction to that was to close in, to close in on themselves. Um, and we were sort of locked up um, because my parents didn't want us exposed to, to that, that threat. Right. So home, home was our, was our fortress. Um, so I don't know. I mean, that's, again, you feel a sense of safety of, of achievement, right? I, I've come a long way. We have come a long way since then. Um, my family, um, American society, again, you like to think we have come a long way. Um, but I mean, I, I, I describe the words I used in the essay were revocable and refutable. Our American dream was revocable, refutable. Um, and when I what I mean by that is, uh, you know, again, violence, racist violence can happen at any time, at any place. Um, and you're still vulnerable to that. Um, you know, we're, we're years removed from Charlottesville. We we know that again, like that, those opinions once deemed disrespectable have been given permission to to express themselves uh, freely. And that revocable nature of the American dream, uh, you know, in the last several years with the rise of open support for white Christian nationalism, have you had that perpetual feeling of queasiness return to any extent? Because you write a few weeks after Buchanan's convention speech, I went off to my freshman year at Yale, and this too was a piece of that accelerated American dream. I was the first in my mother's line to attend college. On my father's side, he was the first and only one to get higher education, the Guyanese. That's where your family is from, you know, in the past, you're from India. But the Guyanese government had paid for college in exchange for his service in a volunteer paramilitary unit. It. And afterwards, he went to work for the country in the field laboratory of a nationalized sugar estate. In the United States, his foreign degree in the natural sciences did not pass muster. He had made his first Yankee dollars on a, as a day laborer with a masonry crew run by an uncle. The summer I left for college, however, despite owning the house, despite the imminence of the Ivy League, our own class position still felt refutable. Why did success not also bring along with it a sense of stability and sustainability. Why did you have this feeling of precarity? And does that f feeling of precarity return when we see this rise of white Christian nationalism? That's exactly it, right? I mean, the return of white Christian nationalism, it never really went away. <laughs> um, uh, but the, the, the open expression of it, right? Um, you know, the PTSD you described, the unease, the queasiness, um, I think that that was, I will admit that that is a feature of my personality. And I believe that the, the point of origin for it were, were those series of attacks when I was quite young. I was 12 or 13 when they were at their most intense. So I think I sort of internalized that sense of of insecurity, you know, um, it's it's what made me want to be a journalist because 
in addition to queasiness, I was 12 and headstrong and also outraged all the time. Like I felt like these were injustices that I could, I, I had to do something about and how could I do something about them through, through words, right? So um, it gave me a sense of outrage as well. Um, and I mentioned, you know, going off to Yale because um, I never really felt comfortable in my skin there. Um, and freshman year, I was in a humanities program. Somehow I, I knew to apply for it and, and, and got into it. And my my peers had mainly gone to places like, um, you know, Milton or Andover. And it sounded to me like they emerged from the womb knowing how to speak about the categorical imperative and Kant, right? And um, I didn't have that. I didn't grow up in a home um, with cultural capital. So it, it's partly that too. I mean, it's just so compl complicated. It's it's migration, it's race, it's skin color, it's also class, right? So um, on the dot busters, this anti-Indian gang, white Christian supremacy, um, the violence associated with it, those were all, um, uh, you know, kind of landing in violent ways psychologically right but then there's also the the other question of where do you fit in these elite and and privileged spaces and um a deeper question than that um should you want to right i mean is that what the american dream is all about you know succeeding in a system that that has not given uh people of color uh a fair and equal chance and you point out that in the late 1980s, in and around our neighborhood in Jersey City, New Jersey, our anonymous terrorizers and others who shared their hate at first used words as weapons. Then they deployed baseball bats, bricks, metal pipes, acid, their fists, their spit. A handwritten letter sent to the local newspaper published in August of 1987 stated the goal, we will go to any extreme to get Indians to move out of Jersey City. And this is only, you know, 25 years ago. This is in the 1980s. Um, the, my hometown of East Detroit, during the 1980s, there were a lot of cross burnings happening on the lawns of people's homes because African Americans were moving into this horrible area. And so uh, this is something that people should remember that, you know, races, that those kinds of acts of racism aren't from news footage or newsreels from the 50s. These are things that were happening in the 80s. And you add that the writer, the letter writer, bragged that there would be three Patel attacks later that night. A few days later, several blocks from us, a man with the last name Patel was beaten with a metal pipe while he slept in his home. After the newspaper published the Dot Buster's letter, the attacks escalated. While walking down the street, a medical resident was beaten with a baseball bat, and a Citicorp employee uh, out for drinks with a friend was pummeled with bricks. The first man, man emerged from his coma. The second man did not. Is this what you expected at all when you came to the United States or your parents when they came to the United States? Were you or they ever forewarned about the violent racism against non-whites in the United States? How aware were you of the racism that exists in the U.S.? Well, I was about to turn seven when we we came. So I that was not um, an education that I, that I had received. Um, and we were fleeing racism in our home country in Guyana as well it 
it's such a complex history. Um, when you when you think about the idea of America, right, the soul of America, as Buchanan put it, who who we are, what we believe, and what we stand for as Americans, you know, um, those values are either um, enacted or betrayed at home and also abroad, right? Because we have to think about America's role in the world. Um, and so Guyana, former British colony, uh, sits on the Northeast coast of South America. Um, in 1953, a Marxist leader, Chetty Jagan, um, emerged actually as the first Marxist leader in the Western hemisphere. Um, and, and his um, political party, he, his wife, woman from Chicago, by the way, uh, Janet Rosenberg Jagan, they were Marxists. I mean, at, they, they were the real thing. And the United States government became heavily invested in, in maneuvering them out of power. Um, all by way of saying the, the United States government intervened in Guyanese politics in ways um, you know, that led to a dictatorship uh, in the 80s um, and a, a dictatorship that was discriminatory, was discriminating um, against non-Blacks, um, against um, Indians in Guyana, right? So we, we fled that. Um, again, that situation created partly by the United States so already, you know, we know American ideals have been betrayed. Um, the U.S. intervened in ways that increased tensions between Blacks and Indians um, by sponsoring um, violence between the two groups. Um, U.S. money flowed into, into that, you know, hell, right? So we left fleeing racism, a racism partly created by the United States, um, and I'm certain, you know, my parents certainly had a, a very strong sense of the U.S.'s role in that. Um, but ironically, you know, able still to believe that this was the place we could we could have our opportunity, right? So I don't think that they um, they had had an education in in how deeply the U.S. had betrayed those ideals um, within within the United States itself. Um, it's been an education for them that they, we are continuing to learn. Um, I have two younger sisters, um, they're educators as well. Um, and um, it's an ongoing conversation um, with with my my parents, um, you know, to educate them in the history of, of American racism. Um, obviously, you know, they, they didn't need, they quickly got that education um, on the streets of Jersey City. Um, so it's it's complicated. It's it's this question of the American dream. It's so I, I refer to it as as religion, right? So it's um it's it's affective. It's it's um it's about how you educate yourself about racism, but it's also about how you feel and your sense of belonging or or lack thereof. We are speaking. Sorry about that. Go ahead. No, I just said, does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Very much so. Very well, too. Uh, we are speaking with journalist and author Gayutra Bayadar, who uh, wrote the 
Boston Review article, Unmaking Asian Exceptionalism on Violence and the Possibility of Solidarities in America. I am finding this uh, conversation as fascinating as your writing is, Gayutra. I really appreciate it. Uh, you were just talking about family, and w- at one point you write of the, your family uh, paying off their mortgage. This is a matter of some pride for my parents because we had survived in the United States with very little money. The regime we had fled allowed Im- immigrants to leave with only the equivalent of $30 per person. And there were four of us. Nor did we have intergenerational wealth. What we did have was a support network and a large extended family. An aunt who came before us took us into her one-bedroom apartment when we landed, just as we took in relatives who came after us. My childhood taught me that family is figurative wealth. Only later did I realize that kin who could provide first shelter, sponsor for green cards, and even co-sign mortgages, could also more concretely be capital. I came to understand this as our privilege. How do we understand or view family differently when we see it as a, a thing of capital and privilege? How do we understand family differently when we see it within those frameworks of capital and privilege? Um. Oh, gosh, that that is such a deep question, right? Because again, we think of that as identity making. Um, our our parents, our nuclear family, our extended family, they make us who we are. Um, and when we say that, we think of it in terms of character, right? They make you who you are in terms of character. But then they also make you who you are as a financial being in the world, right? You know, um, if if you have a trust fund, if you have parents were able to provide um, part of the deposit for a home. Um, and in our case, you know, family members who had to show the U.S. government that there was enough money in the bank to sponsor us, that if we came and it failed, somehow, if we, we did not become, quote unquote, productive members of society, they would be able to support us. Um, and, you know, coming from the history that my family does, which is a history of indenture, Um, We already knew how family could work in that way. Um, And let me just step back for a bit, if I could, to talk about the history of indenture. Is that okay? Yeah, feel free. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So um, after the abolition of slavery in the British Empire, um, roughly 1.5 to 2 million Indians um, and also um, Chinese were transported across the globe to British colonies to take the place of the enslaved on um, plantations. And in Guyana, um, you know, uh, 250,000 Indians were were trafficked, I think that's fair to say, to work on the plantations. And we know that the the Middle Passage was, was profoundly disruptive to family bonds, right, destroyed the those bonds. Um, and the way that slavery worked uh, in the United States and across the world uh, was to, w- without reverence for the, those ties, those bonds. And a, sort, a similar thing um, happened with indenture. And um, roughly 30% of the indentured workers were women and most of those had left India um, without husbands by their sides, right? So they had been internally displaced because of colonialism, because of famine, um, British economic policies, 
Um, so that was disruptive to family. Um, and um, when they landed in the various colonies, uh, the women were sometimes allotted to men by overseers, right? Um, and because there was such a shortage of women, um, the women exercised their, you know, uh, tenuous freedom to move from one partner to the next. So what you saw uh, through the system of indenture was, again, the institution of um, family um, disrupted in profound ways, right? So as part of the resistance of, of the indentured and formally indentured to that system, they recreated the institution of a family, um, you know, from villages in Northeast India to Guyana and Trinidad and Jamaica. That became a huge part of their sort of self-respect was to say that um, we're no longer in, in these communal barracks on the plantation, but we're able to, to live again um, in family units in villages outside of the plantation. And that was sort of the, the kind of um, a history of my own particular family. Um, I was born a mile from the plantation on which my ancestors had worked for a few generations, right? Um, but it was a matter of pride that they were finally able to leave the plantation, have a home, and um, be somewhat economically independent. They were able to do that because the family functioned as an economic unit as well. Um, so every every available hand worked, uh, you know, um, the little patch of rice land that the family had, for instance, um, women withdrew their labor from the plantation, but they went to work in the home, right? We know about that, the the un, unpaid labor of women within a household in raising children, um, in the Guyanese case, in, you know, um, raising, uh, sorry, growing vegetables to sell at market, right? So we knew that coming already, that family was um, a salvation spiritually, culturally, that against, you know, the, the racial capitalism of the plantation, that you're able to save this part of your soul, that it was that, but that it was also an alternative economic unit. So capitalism seems to have this history of tearing families apart, yet here in the United States, we, we're constantly telling people that the United States is pro-family while completely embracing capitalism. So is capitalism a threat to the family or is it only a threat to non-white families? Wow, I'm not sure how to answer that question. What What are your thoughts on it? <laughs> I don't know. I, I just came up with a question just now while I was yeah. listening to you talk because I couldn't, I was like thinking, you know, uh, every, you're, here we are talking about capitalism destroying families and all we hear from people who are running for office is we have to embrace free markets. It's the only way that we can get freedom and we must believe in the family. Communism wants to tear apart families. Capitalism doesn't want to. So yeah, right. it just it's, made me think about this whole history yeah. of capitalism yeah. destroying families. Yeah. It, and it, it did exactly that, right? So resistance, recreating family became a form of resistance to to the plantation, which is, of course, the embodiment of, of capitalism. Um, and in the United States, again, I'm, it gave us a strategy. I'm not, obviously, they didn't think of it in those terms. I don't think my aunt was, saw herself uh, um, as having that official role, right? I mean, you were the you were just fulfilling your duty to your family members because of emotional bonds. But 
um, again, in like weighing my privileges, there are many ways in which we were not privileged, but then there were many ways in which we were. Um, and having the financial support of family was, was a big part of it. We also came speaking English that helped because Guyana was a British colony, right? Um, speaking a creolized English, but um, able to code switch in the way that, that many immigrants are. Um, and in terms of structural racism, I talked about home ownership rates, right? And those disparities. But something else I've been thinking about a lot is um, law enforcement, which obviously um, is such a huge issue with Black Lives Matter and uh, all of the history that came before it. Um, and one of the things that's interesting to me about the Thoughtbusters case um, is how is the inaction of the local police when the attacks took place. Um, and, uh, you know, the close ties between some of the young men who were accused of, of perpetrating the attacks um, and the local police department, right? So again, the American dream promises us one thing and the way that, uh, you know, uh, law enforcement works on the ground shows us, shows us another. And as you point out, uh, you know, these were obviously the attacks on uh, Asian Americans in the late 80s in Jersey City. These attacks were obviously about white supremacy, but some of the attacks were committed by people of color. And this is a question that keeps coming up on the show because it's a kind of rhetorical flourish that you often hear on the right, that these cannot be uh, acts of white supremacy because people of color were involved in these. How can people of color in attacks on uh, South Asians, how can they be, whether they realize or not, reinforcing white supremacy? Um, this is a difficult one, right? I mean, most of those attacks were, were committed by um, "Quote unquote white white people," but there were there were a few that weren't, and in fact, one of one of the cases that resulted in a death. Um, in that case, the perpetrators were, for the most part, Puerto Rican, I believe, and there was another report about um, African American teenagers going into a, a grocery store in Little India in Jersey City and, and spraying acid on the owner and his two-year-old daughter. I mean, that for me, um, as, a, as a person of color growing up in, in this city, which was um, in the 80s already 30% immigrant and 60% non-white, right? So for me, as someone who cares deeply about solidarities among people of color when faced with white supremacy, I mean, that's a, it, it, it's, dis, it's disturbing. But it's important to view that within the context of, um, I mean, as I put it in the piece, white supremacy can be so deeply embedded in the skin of societies that white skin itself is no prerequisite, right? Um, and, and that's true for um, for all groups, for African Americans, uh, Latinx folks, um, you know, Asian Americans. Um, it can be very easy to internalize those ideas, um, anti-Black racism, as well as the model minority myth. 
And let's get to that model minority myth. You write that strictly by the numbers, Asian people in the city appeared to be faring better economically than African-American, Latino, and white people as classified by the U.S. Census Bureau. My family arrived in the city where the prospect of owning a home was dauntingly remote for most and uh, clearly out of sync with the national picture. You then ask, is it any wonder that the dot busters targeted property as well as people or that some other people of color struggling disproportionately also participated? To you then, does it make sense? This isn't to legitimize or to say it was the right thing to do. To you, does it make sense that living under capitalism, a group that was disproportionately struggling for a long time, that suddenly has new neighbors who are not like them and do not practice the same religion and practice a different religion openly, who have nothing but uh, who have nothing, but suddenly, within only one generation, has success that the new group would be targeted for retribution from the old group that is still disproportionately struggling. Look, looking back, do those attacks make yes. perfect sense to you, given our state of inequality under capitalism, let alone our? culture of violence and history of structural racism. Does it completely make sense within this framework? And if it does, what does that say about this framework? Exactly, right? Um, no, I understood it even then somehow. <laughs> you know, that's the cognitive dissonance uh, work is, uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I told you I've just moved back to Jersey City and the neighborhood I live in is very gentrified. As someone who grew up here, <laughs> who came up in Jersey City, I feel an enormous amount of tension and anxiety around these newcomers, you know, who um, are of all racial backgrounds, but they're gentrifiers. So I get it. I, I understand, um, um, again, like affectively on an emotional level, how that how that feels, you know, that that sense of displacement um, and uh, I covered immigration for many years for the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Austin American Statesman, um, and I went out of my way, in particular, to to listen to to nativists. You know, um, I did a profile of a man from Pennsylvania who was a Minuteman, um, and you know, sat down over many coffees and dinners, listening listening to him and trying to understand why it was that he saw the world that it in the ways that he did. Um, and, and this is what politicians can exploit, right? A sense of of not not succeeding, of being um, you know surpassed by someone else or um, displaced. It's that kind of vulnerability that politicians exploit. Um, but I do very much see it um, as a story of class as well as race. Um, these were people again who you know. Um, or third or fourth generation Americans, um, and um, they had a right to be to be um, bitter, um, dissatisfied with the American dream. I get that. But instead of looking at the system in its totality, they there's a tendency to blame the other that has had the success that they haven't had. But you you mentioned. Uh, being Asian as a class. You write, Asian, like other census-given identities, is too broad a category. It collapses into one of wide diversity of individual migration histories, as if the path of a Filipino recruited as a nurse on a work visa matches the path of a Vietnamese who landed as a refugee. The state and the street both do this reductive work. Society, through the model minority myth, 
in a sense, flattens the identity Asian into a class. How is Asian a class when you consider or when you adopt to your thinking of the model minority myth? And is that unique for a race as categorized on the census to be a marker of a class? Can you repeat the last question? Is that unique for... Is that unique as, as categorized, to be categorized on the census, but to be a marker for a class? I, I think it is. I mean, I can't think of a, another example example of that, right? And I mean, this this piece for the Boston Review was widely read and a lot of Asian Americans um, wrote, wrote to me to say, you know, I, thank you for writing this because uh, people do not understand the complexity of individual migrations. Um, you know, the trajectories that bring people to the U.S. and um, you're seen as as automatically privileged and successful when the reality is quite different, right? Asian-American that contains many, many different people, many different folks who came here in different ways and had absolutely different experiences upon landing. Um, I mentioned that uh, Asian-American also includes my West Indian family, um, and there is I think you know this is a, this is kind of maybe a marker of West Indian families is that there's a huge range of class within one family and occupations. Um, so you know, um, my aunts and when they landed, so sewed clothes in a factory. You know, others have been security guards. Uh, my father, I mentioned, um, he started out on a, a masonry crew. Right. And then there were others who were going to college at, at night and um, becoming, you know, actuaries um, or now there are a bunch of teachers in our family. Right. So. Um, this goes back, really, I mean, to the Hart Seller Immigration Act of 1965. I talk about that as our, our that is our origin story. The Hart Seller Immigration Act removed bans on Asians um, immigrating to the United States, remove those quotas that kept Asian and um, African immigration um, at low levels, right? So it created the opportunity for us to come here. But at the same time, it's in a sense, um, the birth of the model minority, minority myth, because it prioritized the immigration of um, people coming from education, for education and highly skilled jobs. So the first the first wave were structurally set up for success, right? You were looking at a particular group of people. Um, and that that is perhaps where uh, the model minority myth begins, where that stereotype begins. Is being American to act with privilege. Is that what the American dream is? Because you write about an unnerving truth that has served the politics of divide and rule across centuries and borders. White supremacy can be so deeply embedded in the skin of societies that white skin itself is not a prerequisite. So is being American to act with privilege? Is that a sign of success? Is the American uh, dream to mm -hmm. align with white supremacist beliefs, whether we recognize that we are doing that or not? Mm -hmm. 
No, it is not because I refuse to let to let it let it be bad, right? To me, when oh, President Obama talked about the beating heart of our American idea, right? American exceptionalism, it is a statement of ideals, and that that ideal is a, about people who are outside positions of power and privilege, right? I know that I'm restating the religion here, but um, I believe that it's possible and it does come down to what the Guyanese historian uh, Walter Rodney called people power, right? Walter Rodney, Pan-Africanist intellectual, author of How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. Um, he was on the ground in the 1980s in Guyana fighting the dictatorship. He was trained as a historian, but took that out into the streets, right? To to fight for the ability of people to, um, you know, fight a dictatorship, to fight state power, um, and I believe in 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 that possibility here in the United States as well. I mean, we recognize that the system is, um, some might even say, rigged, right? Deeply problematic, um, and we get to define what it means to be American, and and that does not mean to act with privilege, but to redistribute privilege to act against privilege that's how i see it i have found this conversation absolutely fascinating as fascinating as the article that you wrote we have been speaking speaking with journalist and author gayutra bahadar who wrote the boston review article unmaking asian exceptionalism on violence and the possibility of solidarities in america you can follow her on twitter at G-B-A-H-A-D-U-R, G Bahadur. And you can find out more about her at her website, Gayutra.com. One last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, I promise it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your uh, your response. If you thought those other questions were hellish, this is the most hellish one that I've come up with so far. So you write, my own contribu- contribution is to work toward an expanded sense of self, an I that redefines exceptionalism, my own and America's. By rejecting the concept entirely, I do this because, to echo Langston Hughes, I too am America. So, Gayutra, why do you want to be part of an America that has such capacity for hatred? Because it also has the capacity as any, I mean, any, any people, country, society, um, to, to reject hatred. Um, it's, it's who I am. I have no choice in the matter. I was brought here against my will at the age of seven. And that now, now it's the place I live, um, and, uh, call home. Um, and this is hard. I find myself contradicting myself constantly with this right american dream deeply problematic american exceptionalism needing to be dismantled but but there is this like strong belief in me that keeps that keeps saying fight for the right version of it It, and where else in the world can can it's not about success it's not about owning a home or going to an ivy league university but but what other country has an idea of itself, right? I mean, what other, in in what other place do we have this ideal to fight for, right? 
Yeah, but just like you were saying uh, during our conversation, it's that cognitive dissonance of being an American. It is. I mean, I what makes me want to be here? It's where my it's where my kin is. It's where my my family is. The clo- the nuclear, the extended, the ones that, that I've chosen. Um, you know that that's just ultimately what it is. It's your home, and you fight for it to be the best version of itself. Gayutra, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. This has been a fascinating conversation. And the next time you have any writing coming out, if you have a new book coming out, please get in contact with us. We'd love to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. And thank you for your interest in this sort of forgotten history. It's very forgotten history. I forgot all about it. That's why I had you back. (laughs) That's why I had you on this show. Thank you so much for being on the show, Gayutra. Really appreciate it. Be grateful. Thank you, Chuck. Take care. This is not the media. This is hell. And this week's evidence that this is not like any other media outlet is what just happened. A long-form, in-depth discussion on racism toward Asian Americans and their struggle for civil rights. If you appreciated that, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. On Patreon last week, it was about a good idea gone bad. That good idea is sanctuary cities, which protect immigrants from being unlawfully deported for committing the civil offense, a civil offense of immigration papers expiring or being undocumented. But what happens when a, say, further right-wing community that's, pa- that's pissed about big cities becoming sanctuaries for immigrants decides to make a sanctuary of their own? Well, it's happening in red states across the country and in red counties across those states, and their sanctuaries are to protect unlawful gun ownership. Yes, they are Second Amendment sanctuary cities, and I discussed them on Patreon this past week, also on Patreon. While going through the archives, I stumbled upon a 20-year-old conversation about war crimes charges being brought against U.S. General Tommy Franks just a little over a month into the war on Iraq. I know, I didn't remember it either, and I researched, wrote, and conducted the entire interview, which ended up being, apparently, only 11 minutes long. So we played what turned out to be a very short conversation with Colette Mollert of the Belgian organization Medicine for the Third World, which at the time was charging General Franks with war crimes. But you only can hear all of that by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do, you get immediate access to more than five years of Patreon podcasts, as well as a special code word that gives you a $5 discount on all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. And if you go to our Patreon page, again, patreon.com slash thisishell, there's a search bar kind of in the middle-ish of the front page that you are viewing. Uh, search and in, in that search bar, you can put in, let's say, Chomsky, and you would be able to get access to each one of our Patreon podcasts that featured our seven, count them, seven interviews with Noam Chomsky, including an interview that we did with him on September 8th of 2001, and then another one on September 15th 
three days before 9-11 and four days after 9-11. We were the first media outlet to have a live phone or live conversation of any sort with Noam Chomsky following 9-11. And you can find that interview and all of our interviews with Noam Chomsky, Howard Zinn. They're all over there at Patreon. And all you have to do is search on Chomsky, search on Zinn, search on who, whatever guests that you can't find their <laughs> interview currently at our website, which thisishell.com has interviews back dating back to 2014. If you want to find any of our older stuff, go to patreon.com slash thisishell, become a subscriber and search away. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And please tell us how our listeners are responding so far on Patreon. This week's question from hell is, what? where would you like next to see Tucker Carlson? Where would you next like to see Tucker Carlson? I was going to say, like to see Tucker Carlson next, but who likes ending a sentence with a preposition? Nobody. So I had to make it a clumsy, clumsy question. How are our listeners responding on Patreon? Um, we've got on Patreon, we've got, well, this is never want to see that jackass again, unless it's an obit notice. <laughs> Who said that? Uh, Sarah K. All right, Sarah. That. Thank that you. Was... Sarah just asked how uh, she could become a, uh, get an invite to Discord, and I shared that earlier on today's show. You can also see our Discord link at our Facebook page and on Twitter. How about our next one? Uh, we've got pilot, piloting Elon Musk's next rocket. <laughs> that's nice. You see Tucker Carlson blow up in an Elon Musk rocket. Who said that one? Uh, that's Tynan S. S. Yeah, okay, Tynan, thank you. And Neil C. says, in, a dra- in drag at an immigration detention center <laughs> reading out loud all of Derek Bell's books on critical race theory. Wow, wow, that's specific. <laughs> all right, let's leave them right there because I know that we have to play uh, the uh, past inside the present with uh, Sebastian Vupper. Sebastian was supposed to be doing it live on Monday. Unfortunately, uh, there was a timing issue with our guests, so we weren't able to do a show yesterday. We have rescheduled that guest, Christopher Ketchum, for later this week. And Dan will be telling you about that in just a moment. Uh, but again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our stuff by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And you can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us or you can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show. And we will be reading the rest of your answers tomorrow and announcing this week's winner. And now, and we never do this. We always try to do everything live. But because Sebastian wasn't available today, and he did have a past and the present already prepared. Now, the past inside the present with Dr. Sebastian Vupper, who has a PhD in history and gives us the historical context from the past that we need to have a better understanding of the present. Take it away, Sebastian. The past inside the present. With Fox News in the news, uh, I thought this would be a good time to look at the way everyone's favorite cable news channel came into being, or rather, what change in American policy contributed to the rise of cable news as a thing. Of course, quote-unquote news in all of American media is something of a misnomer. The United States does not have any news broadcaster that is not commercial. 
that news in the American market is basically always entertainment, at least to some degree, with some news value attached. Your mileage may vary. This is part of a larger issue, really, where, from a certain point of view, any and all cultural production is fueled by advertising, be it sports, motion pictures, theater, or music. Or news. Without advertising money, there would be none of these things, or at least there would be none of these things in the shape we know them today. There certainly would be no Fox News, since Fox runs on advertising too. This, of course, also means that news channels that feature advertisers are in various degrees beholden to them, which is a fairly big problem given who advertises on news channels. Can't be too critical of the car industry if GM runs ads for their latest gas guzzlers between the segments. But advertising and news reporting have gone hand in hand since the earliest days of newspapers, which is why some of the more storied newspapers that have been in business since the 19th century have names like the Cincinnati Advertiser, because these newspapers would carry advertisements for local businesses alongside local news. And while this is related, it's not really the main topic of today's segment. So what really made Fox News and much of today's media landscape in the United States possible? It's actually not a presence, but an absence, or rather an abolition. The revocation of the Fairness Doctrine in 1987. So what was the Fairness Doctrine? How did it come to be and why is it considered important today, almost 30 years after it was abolished? In the 1930s, radio news broadcasting was governed by what is referred to as the Mayflower Doctrine, which essentially prohibited news broadcasters from editorializing and required the presentation of controversial topics with all sides getting a voice in the process. Broadcasters would risk their license if they injected their own bias via editorializing into the process. The text of the doctrine said that, quote, the broadcaster cannot be advocate, unquote. Critics of the doctrine, mostly conservative radio station owners, cried foul. The doctrine was portrayed as an infringement on free speech and freedom of the press. This was an especially salient critique in the late 1940s, since during the war, the government did curtail news reporting and broadcasting. In 1947, hearings, the head of the FCC, Clifford Durr, which just a great name, Clifford Durr, uh, conceded that news reporting without editorializing was almost impossible and rooting out editorializing equally hard for the government oversight agency. The Mayflower Doctrine was then replaced by the Fairness Doctrine in 1949 after much debate. The new policy still required broadcasters to provide balanced coverage of controversial issues of public importance and to allow for the presentation of differing viewpoints on these issues. Basically, the Fairness Doctrine lifted the ban on editorializing of Mayflower while maintaining the requirements to present controversial issues from multiple points of view without allowing any one point of view to become dominant. But the doctrine also, and most importantly, uh, meant that a point which and a point which often gets forgotten in the debate mandated that broadcasters report on issues of public importance. Period. 
From our vantage point, the Fairness Doctrine seems like a progressive victory. However, its origins are anything but. This ruling did not appear out of thin air, and it was in many ways a concession to conservatives at the time. However, progressives in subsequent decades would repeatedly use the Fairness Doctrine to kneecap, for example, openly segregationalist TV and radio stations by revoking their licenses. The Supreme Court heard several cases challenging the constitutionality of the doctrine and repeatedly over the years found the doctrine in compliance with the Constitution. That is until the Reagan administration. Reagan's FCC chair, uh, first FCC chair, I, I think, Mark S. Fowler, found in 1985 that the doctrine violated speech, free speech provisions and actually hurt the public interest more than it was serving the public interest. In the following years, Reagan's FCC set to systematically dismantling the Fairness Doctrine until it was eventually fully abolished in 1987. In the 1987 ruling, the FCC stated that due to the proliferation of voices in the media, which happened in no small part due to the deregulation of the cable sector, that the Fairness Doctrine, quote, restricts the journalistic freedom of broadcasters, unquote, and that it further, quote, actually inhibits the presentation of controversial issues of public importance, unquote. Basically, the position was that because there were so many different broadcasters now, individual broadcasters no longer needed to pay attention to actually presenting things in a balanced way. If the public wanted an alternative position to any given topic, they could just go to the marketplace of ideas that was their remote control and hear another opinion with another broadcaster. The government had no place interfering with this. Some scholars have suggested that the Reagan administration's opposition to the Fairness Doctrine was motivated by ideological considerations. According to communications professor Mark Lloyd, Reagan and his allies, quote, Reagan and his allies saw the doctrine as a threat to the conservative agenda that they were pursuing, unquote. Other scholars have argued that the Reagan administration's opposition to the Fairness Doctrine was motivated by a desire to promote market-based solutions to media regulation. A paper published in the Journal of Media Economics, scholar Michael J. Sokolo and Richard E. Uh, Ocheo argue that, quote, the Reagan administration believed that the market rather than the government, uh, rather than government regulation, was the best way to ensure that different viewpoints were heard, unquote. The abolition of the Fairness Doctrine had significant implications for the media landscape. The abolition massively contributed to the rise of conservative talk radio, boosting the career of noted homophobe and racist piece of bleep Rush Limbaugh. Uh, according to communications scholars Matthew Baum and Phil Gusson, the demise of the Fairness Doctrine created a market for conservative talk radio, which filled the gap left by traditional media outlets that had abandoned conservative viewpoints, end quote. Despite the contra controversy surrounding the Fairness Doctrine's demise, there is little consensus among scholars about its effectiveness or its continued re relevance. Some argue that the doctrine was an important tool for promoting a diverse and balanced media landscape, while others maintain that it was outdated and unnecessary. In her paper published in the Journal of Broadcasting and Electronic Media, uh, scholars Yohai Bankler and Robert Ferris argue that the Fairness Doctrine was, quote, inadequate to achieve its goals, end quote, and that it, it, quote, often created perverse incentives for broadcasters to avoid controversial issues altogether, end quote. According to Bankler and Ferris, the doctrine's repeal was a, quote, necessary step in promoting a more diverse and competitive media landscape, end quote. Others, however, argue that the Fairness Doctrine was an important tool for promoting fairness and balance in uh, the media, 
and that it, its repeal has contributed to the erosion of public trust in the media. In a paper published in the International Journal of Communication, a scholar John Wiebe argues that, quote, the fairness doctrine was a necessary public policy to ensure that broadcasters serve the public interest in providing balanced coverage of important issues, end quote. So the world we live in today was shaped in no small part by the demise of the fairness doctrine, especially given the hyper-commercialized nature of the American media market. Fox News would not exist with the fairness doctrine in place. And while the doctrine was a relatively weak policy compared with the doctrines it replaced, it still served as a guardrail against the onslaught of increasingly partisan BS presented as, presented as news coverage in the years since its demise. Chances are that without the evolution of the fairness doctrine, we would not have seen a George W. Bush presidency, and we certainly would not have seen one by Donald Trump. The fairness doctrine was no panacea, and reinstating it would not magically unscrew the American media market, though. News would still be mostly entertainment and would still be beholden to advertisers. Because even with the fairness doctrine, we would still be living in hell. Just a hell with some more government-mandated fair and balanced reporting. Probably. That was Sebastian Vupper and the past inside the present. Just a couple of thoughts on the Fairness Doctrine. One of the things that the Fairness Doctrine enforced was to make certain that every outlet would have would offer both points of view, both sides of the story, both as in two, but not all. And so all you would ever hear is the Republican side and the Democratic side. There was a time when you would hear more points of view. You would hear all points of view, but the Fairness Doctrine and insisted on both points of view. And you can see that today in our current media state, where all you get is the Republican point of view and the Democratic point of view, and anything outside of those two major corporate-funded political parties, anything outside of what those two parties want is outside of any discussion. And uh, one of the things that the uh, Fairness Doctrine enforced was a problem that we ended up having with climate change in the late 80s and early 90s when it came to covering climate change. And that is, if the two parties agree on a topic, then it was not discussed. Fairness Doctrine wouldn't be need to be employed because there was only one point of view. If it was a bipartisan issue, then the Fairness Doctrine was, would not be even put into place and what would be discussed would be eliminated because there are no other dissenting point, points of view. And that's what happened with climate change at the, in the late 80s and early 90s. Both parties, the Republican and Democratic Party, despite all of the evidence showing that there was climate change going on and everybody was aware of it, nothing has changed when it came to the scientific conclusions from the late 80s and early 90s. Absolutely nothing has changed. Yet there was no discussion of climate change, and the Fairness Doctrine uh, would created that environment of if it is if there is bipartisan agreement on something, then it is something that is not discussed. And sure, Fox News wouldn't be around if there was a Fairness Doctrine. Sure, Rush Limbaugh would not have been around if there was a Fairness Doctrine. Sure, President Trump probably would never become President Trump if there was no Fairness Doctrine, or if there was a Fairness Doctrine. But this is hell would not exist if there was a fairness doctrine, because then Northwestern University Radio, Lumpen Radio, uh, KRFP Radio Free Moscow, uh, in Winnipeg, the, their community radio station where we broadcast CKUW, 
all those stations would have to have somebody on who's giving a opposite point of view from ours. And so you would never hear our show on any commercial station or even public broadcasting station with the Fairness Doctrine. Thanks to Sebastian for the past inside the present. Dan, please remind us one more time, what is this week's question from hell for our listeners? The question from hell is, where would you next like to see Tucker Carlson? And we'll be sharing uh, the rest of your answers tomorrow, as well as announcing this week's winner. On, and whoever uh, won gets their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Dan, who is our next guest here on This Is Hell? We'll be having... Journalist and author Christopher Ketchum, who wrote the Truth Dig article, The Green Growth Delusion, Advocates of Green Growth Promise a Painless Transition to a Post-Carbon Future. But what if the limits of renewable energy require sacrificing consumption as a way of life? The Green Growth Delusion is from the Truth Dig series, green-tinted glasses. Christopher was on the show back in January when we talked about his article, The Shutdown of Luxury Emissions, should be at the center of climate revolt. Thanks to listener Leo G., who suggested we have Christopher back on the show. Also, uh, thanks to Dan Kugler for getting over the problem. I mean, the script there was a little (laughs) bit redundant. Also coming up later this week, we will reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which goes live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time, U.S. Central Standard Time. At Chicago, or no, we're on Central Daylight Time now? I can't remember. I I think we are. I don't know. At patreon.com slash this is hell We'll also hear a singular moment of truth from Jeff Dorch And Dan, what is Jeff talking about this week? Jeff is wondering What's with all the advice? (laughs) It's time for Nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy Icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby Gory this week in rotten history It's a big history day here today on This Is Hell. On April 30th, 1987, 36 years ago this week, the respected astronomer Mark Aronson was at work in the Kitt Peak National Observatory, located on land of the Tohono O'odham Nation in the Sonoran Desert of south-central Arizona, near the Mexican border. Aronson, an associate professor at the University of Arizona, was noted, among other things, for his early attempts to capture images of dark matter and for calculations revealing that the universe was smaller and younger than scientists had earlier believed. And absolutely nothing rotten has happened yet during this edition of Rotten History. And that scares me because if so far nothing's gone rotten, then it's likely to get real rotten and real fast. On this April night in 1987, Associate Professor Aronson was at work inside the giant dome of the 4-meter Mayall telescope when he decided to step outside and check the weather in anticipation of a night's observations and photography. He stepped outside to check the weather when he has a 4-meter telescope inside. He went outside, and to reach a catwalk, oh, this is where it's going to go bad, I bet. Catwalks never show up in rotten history with a happy ending. 
to reach a catwalk on the outside of the building, Aronson opened a door near the bottom of the telescope dome, which the dome was rotating at the time. The big heavy dome was set up to automatically stop rotating whenever anyone opened the door, which swung outward. But unfortunately for Aronson, he forgot to anticipate that the dome's momentum would keep it rotating for an extra 5 to 10 seconds after the dome motor turned off. A ladder attached to the outside of the dome and extending downward from it made contact with the door, slamming it shut just as Aronson was trying to step through it. The slamming door crushed Aronson to death. He was 37 years old. Award-winning astronomer who has access to a massive telescope steps outside to check on the night viewing conditions in the weather, is crushed to death by a slamming door, and that history went rotten when he decided to go outside to check the weather in the night sky when he's got a access to a huge telescope inside. Also in Rotten History, on May 5th, 1937, 86 years ago this week, amid the chaos of Spanish of the Spanish Civil War, the Italian anarchist Camillo Bernari was assassinated in Bar- Barcelona. Bernari, formerly a professor of philosophy at the University of Florence, had been forced to leave Italy after being targeted there for his outspoken opposition to Mussolini's fascist government. And apparently, it's Dead Professor Day on Rotten History. After migrating through a series of European countries, writing for the anarchist press all the while, Bernari had arrived in Catalonia to join the anti-fascist militia in fighting the nationalists who were led by Generalissimo Francisco Franco. But the Republican opposition to Franco was itself fragmented, and though Bernari had taken part in the fight, he also insisted that the struggle against fascism could not be won by military means alone. As a committed anarchist, he was especially critical of Stalinist elements in the Spanish left who were already out to arrest or kill Trotskyites, libertarians, and advocates of democratic socialism. As a result, Bernari soon found himself in trouble with more than just Franco and the nationalists. He and his friend and fellow anarchist Francesco Barbieri were kidnapped in Barcelona by a dozen men wearing red armbands. Not sure what that means, if that was just trying to throw the dog off the scent or what that's all about. Bernari's and Barbieri's bodies were later found in the street, riddled with bullet holes. Now, that's an item in rotten history that's rotten from beginning to end. I mean, sure, there's the exciting part where he flees Mussolini's fascism to fight Franco's fascism, but otherwise, you get you got your assassination, the backstory, and then there's the callback to what hurt, turns out to be a, a double homicide. Now, that's rotten history from the beginning to the end. The Aronson piece, I was totally thrown off the track because I was like, this seems like an unhappy story. Till an astronomer steps outside to check the weather conditions. Still doesn't make any sense to me. And that's Rotten History. 
Thank you, Ronaldo. And this is Hell. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Dan Kugler for producing. Most of all, thank you for listening. Thanks to Sebastian Vupper again for the past inside the present. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for rotten history. See? We told you so. This is Hell. But <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.